Well, this morning, as we continue our way through Isaiah 53, for those listening on tape, we were mentioning at the assurance of pardon and, and, uh, and word of exhortation that when we think of the Old Testament, this image of climbing a mountain and, and having these vistas over the, 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 the ground and getting a, a broad view of things is, a, is one way to think of the Old Testament. Of course, it's all providing a vista. The whole Old Testament is providing us a vision of what is to come. But I, when you read through the Old Testament, you just know there are these moments in which the, the work of Christ, which the whole Old Testament is driving us toward. Remember, uh, uh, Jesus says in John 5, to those who are not believing in him, uh, you must not believe Moses either, he says, because Moses wrote of me. Uh, the law and the prophets wrote and spoke of him. That's an amazing thing to say and really tells you then by which lenses you must read or through which lenses you must read your Old Testament. We must read it as being, teaching us about Christ. That doesn't mean we don't read it for the real history that it offers or that we don't have to think about how this prophecy addressed its original audience. We have to think about all that. It's all very important to think about the original audience that was receiving it and what it meant for them. But then through that, we read this as training us to understand Christ when he came. Uh, changing the metaphors then that the, the Old Testament provides, like training wheels, spiritual, intellectual, uh, interpretive training wheels that is preparing us so that when Christ comes, we know how to interpret him and what he's doing. But back to the, back to the, let's not get too many metaphors going at one time here. Uh, that, that the metaphor then of the vista as we're climbing the mountain, as we're approaching and going to get the full picture of God's plan of redemption, which we get in Christ. We get little glimpses as we climb the mountain, if you will. Uh, down low, you maybe can't see too much, but as we climb the mountain and get these little lookouts uh, from time to time, we, we see more and more of the picture. And by the time you get to Isaiah 53, you are almost surveying the whole landscape, right? As we said last week, we just don't have a name. We don't have a name. Um, but, but we know now uh, that we are dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ, and Isaiah 53 is a glorious vista indeed of Christ's work, the work of the servant of God. Now, last week, we took up the first two stanzas of this, uh, reaching back into Isaiah 52, where we were told about this servant and what he was going to do. And in that, we considered both his, his exaltation and his humiliation. Um, we had both of those. He is extolled and very high, we're told, and yet at the same time, uh, he is a man of sorrows. And so we felt this tension. Uh, and that's going to help us when we, when we then get to Holy Week and we just see such sorrow and we see such brokenness and we see such weakness. How do we interpret that? Well, Isaiah is one of the texts that has given us those training wheels, if you will, to help us understand what is going on. Now, if we jump into our text today, and our text is, uh, so we're picking up, I'll read here for us Isaiah 53. I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 6, and our text is verses 4 through 6 today. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is the servant that was addressed in, uh, in, in chapter 52, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. 
He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If we feel the movement from the beginning of Isaiah 53 into the beginning of our text, what we're, what we're first uh, uh, pr- uh hit with is our response to this servant. That when we read this, Isaiah is saying right at the outset, when the servant comes, we will not receive him. We did not, we do not esteem him. We are not impressed by him. We don't, get, we don't think he has much of a future. It doesn't look like there's a lot of potential there. We're not attracted to him. All these very negative things about us. It's, a, it's, it's an indictment of us, the reader. And we don't come out looking good in this. Because here is the servant, the man of God's own choosing, as Luther says in, in A Mighty Fortress. Here is the man of God's own choosing, the right man who's on our side, and we are not impressed. There is nothing about him that attracts us to him. Well, well, shame on us then. What were we looking for? What would attract us? I guess that's a great question. We thought last week about, and go, go back to David. We use David's prayer in, in Psalm 51. Go, let's go back to David coming as king. When Israel looked for a king, they looked for a king that impressed them. And they found one. They found Saul. They said, hey, you be our king. And Samuel looked to the Lord, and the Lord says, no, this is not, this is not a, this, he's not my guy. But, 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 hold on, Samuel. Let them have him. Go ahead and let them do it. Because when they do, they will learn that the things that impress them are not the things that are for their good, necessarily. But they had lenses by which they were looking for a qualified king, but they were the wrong lenses, And here, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is just coming at them from another angle and saying, now a negative. So here we have the wrong lenses that attracted us to the kinds like Saul. And those very same lenses keep us from being attracted to the king of kings, to Christ. It really makes you question them, by what lenses are you looking at things? By what lenses are you interpreting reality? Because clearly here, it is our nature to have lenses by which we interpret the world that do not tell us the truth. If you look at Christ and you don't find him attractive, there's nothing wrong with him. There's something wrong with you. You don't understand what true beauty is, nor do you, I'm saying you, I'm not, I'm I'm, I'm by you here and I'm speaking generically to the reader, myself included, we We do not understand what beauty is. We do not understand what we really need in a king. 
We thought we needed Saul. What we needed was David. A shepherd out in the field who's out there fighting lions and bears, <laughs> saving his sheep. Because when it comes down to it and Goliath is standing before us, we find out how good Saul is. Now he, he's, he's trembling in the tent. We need David. We just didn't know it. So here in this text, it continues that, that last week's text ended that he was despised. He was rejected. And he was despised and rejected, we said, you'll remember from last week, because again, it just didn't, he did not look very promising. He was a shoot out of dry ground. Tough to invest in that. Tough to put all our eggs in that basket. He doesn't look like he has much of a future. And so we despised him. We rejected him. We hid, as it were, Isaiah says, our faces from him. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Instead, skipping over the very beginning of verse 4, because this is where Isaiah is going to bring the hammer down on us a little bit and, and reveal to us the other side of the story of why he is so despised, why he's a root out of dry ground. We'll get there in a second. But skipping over the first beginning of verse 4, back to how we esteemed him. So we did not esteem him because he was despised. So we didn't give him much credit. But what we did think of him was that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We looked at his weakness as judgment. I mean, after all, he ends up on a cross. That's where, that's where criminals go. That's where would-be messiahs go. That's where the rebels against Rome who try, to, who try to set things right but who fail and who ultimately are not God's guy end up. The losers end up up there. The failed messiahs end up up there. So we, speaking generically as human beings, the race of those who are there gathered and who are trying to interpret what's happening on the cross, we viewed him as rejected by God. After all, he, he's actually saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we, through our faulty lenses, look at him and interpret him as rejected. He certainly doesn't look blessed. I mean, foxes have holes and, and whatever, have places to lay their heads, but the, but the Son of Man has nothing. So again, he doesn't, he doesn't look blessed. He, he looks rejected by God. And Isaiah says, and we all went right down that road of viewing him that way. But then Isaiah begins to bring, again, the, turn, the, turn the tone here and, and challenge our lenses. Here's what we failed to recognize. And brings us back to the beginning of verse 4. Surely he bore our griefs. Yes, he was loaded with grief. Yes, he was a man of sorrows. But this is what your lenses failed to pick up and interpret and make clear to you. That the grief he bore was your grief. That the sorrows that weighed him down were your sorrows. That the wounds he bore were for your transgressions, that the stripes that he has on his back were for your healing, 
that his chastisement was your chastisement, right? All of these, all of these, this piling up of qualifiers. Now, I, I titled the sermon, I put it in quotes so you'd know that I wasn't just making up words up here. I, I titled it, you would just say, Hooper. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Hooper. And I did not write it in the Greek but in the English transliteration. And the reason I titled the sermon this way is because, well, the Greek word huper, one of the things it means is on behalf of, on behalf of. And this word has a particular significance to me because I don't know at what point, I don't know how old it was, and I think I, I've told you this before, that my dad must have been listening to a, probably an R.C. Sproul tape. You know, he would, he would pound R.C. Sproul tapes back in the day of tapes, uh, for you kids out there, they were, <laughs> uh, you know, the cassette tapes, but, um, uh, who don't know what I'm talking about, but, but, you know, my dad would, my dad would listen to them, he would, he was managing farms up in Vermont, so his six-hour drive, and then six hours back was just loaded with R.C. Sproul, and at one point, he must have been taken by some lecture that Sproul gave on this word, pair on behalf of, and how, and my dad, I remember because he came home, and then he wrote it on a card, and he he tacked it up in our house. So when you'd walk through through from room to room on the on the beam of the 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 doorway would just be that word on a on a on a poster board, you know, hanging above you. So he wanted us to see it, uh, just the word in in the translation, you know, huper, huper, because it struck a chord with my father that maybe we could we could. Of course, you can't whittle the gospel down to one word. But if you could, he said, perhaps it would be this, huper. That what Christ did, he did, huper, on our behalf. That what Christ did, everything Christ did, he did on our behalf. That he did it for us. And the message of this text that we're looking at here, really, if we could boil it down to one word, it would be that, though this is written in Hebrew, but you know what I mean, down to the word huper, down to the word on behalf of. The gospel is this, that Christ stood in your shoes, that he bore your griefs and your sorrows and your sin. Yes, he was stricken smitten and afflicted who pair for you on your behalf again that's why some people call you know isaiah the the fifth gospel it's the it's it's the gospel it's just so clearly written for us the life of jesus if you will so let's think about this for a second especially in light that's why i said let's have a Genesis 3 ringing in our ears our old testament reading this morning was genesis chapter 3 where the sin where sin enters the world and you will remember that as this as sin comes upon us, we, we eat of the fruit in Adam, and now the curse comes down upon us. The curse to Eve is that now sorrow will be multiplied. Pain and grief in childbirth, but now your life will be one of multiplication of sorrows. And while there are certain uh, while the curse comes to Eve and a curse comes to Adam, in some sense, we as human beings endure the whole thing. Right? I, I, while men don't suffer the same pains in childbirth as women do, nonetheless, childbirth brings pain to men as well. 
they, they endure this with their wives. And when their wives suffer, and when sometimes there's trouble in childbirth, that the, the, the sword, if you will, pierces the soul of the man as well. And then having children is something, a life filled with sorrows and cares and griefs. Children are great, but they, I have, I've told, I've told people before, when you have children, you'll, you'll love like you never loved before. And you will also grieve and fear like you've never feared before and grieve like you go through things with your kids and suffer things with your children. And it, it, that's, that's men and women. Life is filled with sorrow. And it's filled with grief. And, and that's it, Eve. You, you, you've sinned, and as such, sorrows will be multiplied. One of the realities of the curse that we live in is that of sorrow and grief. Yet, yet, And so we look at Jesus and we go, well, look how sorrowful he is. But what we fail to recognize is that he is under the burden of all of the sorrows of mankind that he is bearing on his shoulders all of the sorrows of the world. We can sometimes think of Jesus as just sort of doing a legal transfer. You know, he comes, okay, sin has to be paid for, fine, I'll go to the cross and deal with it. Ching, ching, you know, the, the, you know, the exchange has happened. Okay, eternal glory. And, and, and I, I, yes, he does deal with the sin of the world, but he also deals with the consequences of that sin. He bears in his very person and in his body, in his heart and in his mind, the sorrows of mankind. Again, you know that image I love in Revelation where God comes and he wipes away every tear. It's a very moving and, and intimate image. But that's because he himself poured those tears. And hence they can be wiped away. He bore the burden of Eve's sorrows and all of humanity's sorrows and griefs. He was bowed down with those. And so he didn't impress you because he didn't stand up straight, but you didn't realize the burden that he had on his shoulders. He grieved, but it was your grief that he bore. And he was sorrowful because it was your sorrow. And yes, he was wounded, but for your transgressions. And then you'll notice in verse 5, he was bruised for our iniquities. And it's really that line is the reason why I chose Genesis 3 as our reading today, not just for the sorrows, but for the, for the wounding that he suffers here. Because this image of wounding brings us back to the very heart of the gospel as it's first given. Your first little vista on this hike up this mountain where you get a little glimpse of what's going on, the full picture where the curtain gets pulled back, if you will, is Genesis 3.15. Right at the, the, the fall has just happened. Sin has just happened. And God in his mercy comes and offers them a vista right there. There is going to be a long, hard road of sorrow and grief. But as we begin this journey, God, who is rich in mercy, right at the outset, gives a little glimpse of glory. Because at the beginning, even before Eve and Adam received their judgment, right? The curse that comes upon us as human beings. Before they get theirs, he curses the serpent. And in cursing the serpent, on your belly you will crawl all your days. And 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise him. You will bruise his heel. And verse 5 tells us, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That here we get in Genesis 3.15, this little vista, very hard to see from this perspective. I can't survey much. I'm way down low on the mountain here. But I am getting a little glimpse just over the treetops of, of what's out there. How do I make sense of this? A, a seed of a woman who's going to step on the head of a serpent and, and get his heel bruised. and like There's the whole gospel. That's a view of glory. You're just way down, just above the treetops. And the rest of the Old Testament is going to be now climbing this summit and having that little glimpse opened up for us. And again, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, that wounding is becoming clear. But even then, it's still a little murky until we get to the cross. And we see it in all of its glory. It's, it's, it's horrifying but beautiful glory. Because it is Jesus Christ who is being bruised for us on the cross. But as such, it's not a mere bruising. He's being bruised at the same time that he's crushing the head of the serpent. And we have to have eyes to see it. What's happening on that cross as he's dying there? Again, we did not esteem him. Think of the church in the beginning of last century, and many still struggle with this, all the beautiful churches in our towns in the Northeast, many of them, most of them, do not esteem him. They have bought into a theology that views him as a lovable loser, really. A virtuous failure. A wonderful model of self-giving love. A wonderful model of martyrdom, really. A wonderful model of loving your neighbor. And boy, we should learn from Jesus. And it's a really shame that he died so young. Just think. Lewis has this. I'm reading The Great Divorce with a group of my students. And it's great because he, he, he ends up in a dialogue with, with this priest. And the priest buys into that philosophy. And he just says, oh, he had, Jesus had so much potential. It's really a shame that he, that he died so young. You know, he's, he's presenting this, this priest who's in hell, but who thinks he's just a wonderful theologian. But Lewis wasn't just making up some crazy character. I mean, that was the theology of Christian liberalism that basically viewed Jesus as a model for how we should love people. But at the end of the day, he failed because, look, he died. And you just, again, you talk about not having lenses. And these are all of the beautiful churches in the Northeast, almost. Every town you go to, that beautiful big white church, or that beautiful stone church, or that, you know, are almost all holding that kind of theology that do not see Jesus as the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, where on the cross, he is literally crushing the head of the serpent. And as such, being wounded for our iniquities. Christian liberalism did, viewed the, that idea as just sickening, that God would require a quote-unquote pound of flesh in order to save people. No, no, no. God just calls us to be good people. 
But Isaiah is opening up to us and making the connections of who Christ is for us. He is the seed of the woman. And as such, a suffering servant because he was going to have to have his heel bruised. And on the cross, he gets the heel bruising. And I know it looks more like more than that. It, it, it looks as if he's the one having his head crushed. But again, you need eyes to see. And the resurrection three days later tells you that in fact, as bad as it looked and as awful as it was, at the end of the day, it was a bruising, not a head crushing. It is the serpent whose head has been crushed and our Lord Jesus Christ whose heel has been bruised as he's raised from the dead victorious for us. And then, and only then, do we learn, we look at his wounds a whole new way now. Because his wounds we recognize now and his stripes are for our healing. That his stripes have proven to be the satisfaction, the atonement, who pair on our behalf so that he bore the wrath that we deserved so that we through him might be healed. He took upon himself, as Mark prayed this morning, he was made sin so that we through him might become the very righteousness of God. That I, the impure one, the, 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 the prodigal son returning home with filthy, stinking garments from the pigsty are now given the clean, rich, white robes of the Father. We're healed, renewed, and invited back in for the party because of the wounds and the stripes of our Savior. And Isaiah gives it to us one more way in verse 6. This is the problem, reader. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You know, it's a, Jesus tells that parable about the, the, the shepherd who, you know, when, when, the, when the one sheep got the 99 and the, the one sheep goes wandering off and the, the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out and finds the one. Isaiah flips the whole thing on his head. Isaiah says, all the sheep, forget the one. That's an amazing shepherd who goes hunting for one. But actually the shepherd, it's like herding cats. I mean, the sheep just gone. They're all out their own way. And this shepherd, as we read in John 10 in our New Testament reading, this shepherd is the shepherd who will not lose one of them. He will go find them. He will bring them back. And even more than that, he will lay his life down for them. He's not a good shepherd. Good shepherds don't lay their lives down for the sheep. But the good shepherd does. Right? The good shepherd does. A good shepherd, you know, the, the, the sheep are there actually to serve the, the people, right? You don't, what, good, what shepherd dies for his sheep? Only one, the good shepherd. The unique shepherd. The shepherd of shepherds, the shepherd who is like unlike any other shepherd. He loves his sheep. He seeks them out. He finds them. He lays his life down for them so that he might redeem them. He actually takes the chastisement that the sheep deserve onto himself so that he can liberate and free and help these sheep to thrive. Isaiah, again, we don't come out of this looking great. But what we do come out of here looking is redeemed. We, we come out of this 
we should be on our knees on the other side of this because of this word huper, because of the, the idea that this was all done on our behalf. And in Christ then, we are healed. In Christ, we are forgiven. All our iniquity has been taken by Him. All of our sorrows, and therefore we can come out of this joyful. We can come out of this smiling. We're forgiven. We come out of this with peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. We come out of this healed. By His stripes, we are healed. We come out of this found. We all turned our own way, but he went and redeemed us and brought us back. All of the curse, if you will, is undone. And we are made new in him. That which began, which we started in Genesis 3, is taken on his shoulders and undone and renewed in Jesus Christ. I challenge you then this week to let that word, huper, the Greek word, huper, Ring in your ears. Put it up on your, uh, put it up on your doorways and <laughs> in honor of my dad, I guess, to, to put it up there. And he wanted us as kids to walk through and have to see it and ask him, what's that mean? And then he would tell us. And keep the gospel ringing in our ears. Keep the gospel before our eyes that we were like sheep who had gone astray. We were those who were men of sorrows indeed. But on our behalf, Christ bore our sorrows, took our griefs, took our chastisements, renewed us and redeemed us all on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. As sheep who by nature wander away, as those who deserve your chastisement, as those who have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden, as those who have surrendered to the serpent, that you would love us and that you by your servant, your suffering servant would come and bear our sorrows and take upon him our grief, that we through him might have joy, that he would take our iniquity, that through him we might have righteousness and forgiveness, that he would take our disease of sin and by his stripes then heal us. The Father, He would be wounded so that we through Him might be redeemed. Father, we're amazed by these things and we're thankful. So be with us, we pray, as we thought about in our word of exhortation today. May these truths motivate us unto greater obedience. May we proclaim them constantly, as Paul said, that by them we might be careful and diligent to maintain good works. We thank you that you have loved us. Help us now to serve you faithfully, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.